When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Hey, I just want to shout out uh, all the Patreon supporters and Anchor supporters, uh, the the loyal few that are. Um, thank you so much for all of your support uh, financially there, for liking, commenting, sharing. If you guys like this uh, video or audio, however you're listening, uh, share it with somebody who might like it too. Uh, give me a like. Please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a honest five-star review and uh, leave me a comment too. It seriously helps. It really, really helps. That's a, a big way you can support the show. If you further want to support the show, consider becoming a Patreon supporter or support me on Anchor. That would be huge. But on to the good stuff. So today is another uh, solo episode by yours truly. No guest today. We're going to be talking about the problem of definition, and we're going to focus that problem on defining philosophy. So it's the problem of defining philosophy. Uh, this has been adapted from a short little course that I, I co-taught here at uh, Trinity in the undergrad. Uh, I was able to teach for like 40 minutes every Wednesday on philosophical problems in the intro class to philosophy for my professor. Um, and, and it was really awesome. I loved TAing or GAing or whatever that's called for, for Dr. Arcadi there. And so I thought you guys might like this one as well. So we're going to be talking about the problem of definition as it applies to defining philosophy. But first, a quote from Aristotle. It is necessary with regard to the science that we are seeking that we should first address those puzzles that first arise. For those who wish to make good progress must start well for subsequent progress depends on the resolution of the first puzzles, Aristotle, metaphysics. So that's what we're going to be doing. This is a first puzzles problem. Important in philosophy is defining your terms, but can we even define our terms? What is a definition? What is it? What does it mean to define something? So in studying philosophy, like what does philosophy mean? How do we define it? And if there's this problem inherent in language, that is the problem of definition, how can we ever define it? And around and around and around and around we go. So uh, let's just jump in, philosophy and definition. Are definitions possible? Does our language map onto reality? Are we capable of defining things as they really are? Can we define like their their essence? Or do we define things in name only? Is this just a nominal uh, depiction of definition? Or perhaps neither? Do we just define things according to our own purposes? So you have like initially in that first uh, paragraph there, you have uh, a realist interpretation that we can define things according to their essences. We have a nominalist that, you know, we just put names on things. And then we have like a pragmatic approach too. Uh, no, no, we just, um, we define things for our own purposes, like this this pragmatic approach. So the, this problem of definition is a perfect place to start in, in an introduction to philosophy. 
because philosophy is eminently concerned with definitions. As philosophers Stephen Cowan and James Spiegel note, a good philosopher always takes care to define terms. Not only does this make key concepts clear and distinct in one's own mind, but it also prevents merely verbal disputes. So again, like we, we've got to define our terms. So how are we going to define philosophy? With this in mind, let's define what we're talking about and what we're not talking about when we, when we talk about philosophy. We're, we're not talking about it like this personal philosophy of life, right? So this ain't no uh, hakuna matata, problem-free philosophy type stuff here. So you won't you won't be hearing me saying, well, you know, my personal philosophy is. I think that's important, but that's that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about philosophy in this episode. Uh, we also won't be concerned uh, primarily with like philosophy as a second order discipline, like the philosophy of science, the philosophy of mathematics, or anything like that per se. We'll mostly be seeking to understand philosophy as a first order discipline. What philosophy has to say about philosophy? Which is like some kind of weird second order, first order, positive feedback loop, but but just let that go. We're going to start there. Uh, inevitably, we will get into philosophy as a second order discipline, but that's not our first concern here in this episode. So as we've just demonstrated, definitions are important. In fact, definitions are so important that philosophers uh, Julian Baggini and Peter S. Fossil, they place it in their philosophical commandments. They say, if somewhere there lie written on tablets of stone the ten philosophical commandments, you can be sure that numbered among them is the injunction to define your terms. And they go on to say even more strongly that, in fact, definitions are so important in philosophy that some have maintained that definitions are ultimately all there is to the subject. (laughs) So some people think all philosophy is is just defining things. Philosopher Roger Scruton doubles down on the importance of definitions in philosophy as he considers the definition of philosophy itself. He says, what is philosophy? There is no simple answer to the question. Indeed, it is one, it is in one respect, the main question of philosophy, whose history is a prolonged search for its own definition. So, uh, Beguini and, and Fossil say, yeah, some acknowledge that, oh, some argue that all philosophy is, is de- definitions. And Scruton goes on and says, all philosophy is, is trying to define itself. So it's like the self-referential defining process. Uh, that's all That's all philosophy is. I think it's more than that, but I think those those points are really helpful. You might think that this, uh, this last bit is like an exaggeration. Uh, sure, surely there is more. I, I think there is more to philosophy than just this definition. But historically, the problem of definition has been the driving force in philosophical inquiry. How do we define reality? Can everything be defined as an ultimate unity, this unified one? Or should everything be defined as multiplicity, an ultimate diversity, a many? There are these types of questions uh, that are like, they're, they're pre-Socratic questions. They come before Socrates. They're pre-Socratic. These are like the ultimate questions that thinkers were thinking about before Socrates and up until this day. Those who identify the universe with an ultimate unity are called monists, from the Greek word monos, meaning single. Those who define the universe as an ultimate diversity are called atomists, from the Greek word atomon, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, atomon. Um, Classical Greek is weird, meaning uncuttable, indivisible. The atomists believe that the universe is ultimately made up of tiny, indivisible, like BB-like uh, atoms, right? So the monists believe that everything is ultimately made up of the same single stuff. And the diversity the diversity we see out in reality is actually an illusion. So um, 
they also they often disagreed what that unity was like what is it all one element is it all fire is it all water right so it sounds crazy but we're going to get into why it's not as crazy though still wrong many consider these pre-socratics to be the fathers of philosophy or at least uh the fathers of western philosophy for in seeking to define reality they inaugurated the discipline which looks for systematic answers to life's ultimate questions the discipline which we now call philosophy so in they're they're also called the armchair philosophers which is derogatory but it's kind of true you can just sit in your armchair and kind of reason about reality but these guys were the first to do it or the first to record it or the first recordings we have of people doing it i have argued elsewhere that actually king solomon was closer to the first philosopher or at least the philosopher king but king david did that too and and on and on some people say moses was the first philosopher um i mean it depends on how you're defining philosophy and that's why this process is so important Gordon Clark traces the inauguration of Greek philosophy to a single person, to Thales of Miletus. He even traces it down to the very minute in which philosophy began in his famous, what he calls a partly serious and, and partly fa- facetious assertion. Clark says that Greek philosophy began on May 28th, 585 BC at 613 in the evening. Now, how, how can this statement be taken even partly seriously at all? Clark explains... What was it then that existed after 585 BC, but not before, and began at the ridiculous hour of 6.13 p.m.? It was on that day that there occurred an eclipse of the sun. Of course, solar eclipses had been occurring for some time, but the new characteristic was that this had been predicted by Thales, an astronomer of Miletus in Ionia. Records of celestial phenomena had been kept for centuries by the Eastern sages, but now for the first time Thales had discovered... Uh, Thales had discerned a regularity in these occurrences, had formulated a law, and had tested this formulation by a successful prediction. Together with Thales' other speculations, this is called philosophy. It had not existed previously. Now, some might say, like, astronomy, but no, no. Clark said astronomy existed beforehand. Well, isn't this like science? You're you're making a hypothesis and testing it and finding results? Well, uh, yeah, but He's doing uh, science is, is a branch of, of philosophy. It, it branched off and like left philosophy. But in the early days, to speculate like he was a scientist, not a philosopher, you can't make these like sharp and fast distinctions back then. This is like the first dude to do it. So if you want to say he's the first scientist, I guess that's cool. Um, but Clark is arguing that he's at least the, the first philosopher here. So Thales was uh, one of the first to look at reality and back up his armchair philosophizing with facts. In this sense, not only can he be seen as like inaugurating philosophy, but science and, and, and a lot of the sciences that we find today. So Thales was, was legit. This dude is awesome. But um, not all of his speculations turned out to be so spot on. Thales falls into the monist camp as he sought to reduce the multiplicity found in reality to uniformity in defining all reality as fundamentally comprised of water. So yeah, I see different trees out here as I look out my window, but really it's all one. I see a lot of diverse things, but that's just an illusion because all of reality is ultimately one. Now, and it's all made of water. And so you might be saying like, water? Seriously? What a what a dummy. How could he believe that everything was made of water? Well, Hang on just a second before we judge Thales too harshly. Clark explains that uh, Thales wasn't totally bonkers. Clark says, 
while the fact that all things are made of water is no more important than the fact that all things are made of energy, the reasons and motives behind these assertions cannot be dismissed. Thales was attempting a comprehensive explanation of the universe. Whatever element he chose, it would have to be a plausible source for all the force displayed in natural phenomena. And can anyone who has been tossed in a small boat by a storm on the Mediterranean deny that the ocean is a strong force of power? Again, if water underlies all things and lies under the earth also, as one can see by digging a well, the storms of this subterranean ocean would account for earthquakes. Again, if the universe and all its phenomena are to be explained by one stuff, the original stuff must be capable of uh, transforming itself into visible things common in experience. That water can produce earth is seen in the fact that when water evaporates from a dish, a little earth is left behind. Evaporation also shows how water can produce air. And in lightning uh, and the rain, there is a connection between water and fire. Hence, there is no impossibility in assuming that all things can come from water. How then can water explain life? Well, in the first place, it is obvious that Life cannot exist without water. Plants soon die if there's a drought, and when dead, they dry up. Men, likewise, though they can live a long time on water alone, cannot go long without it. Then again, it seems that water can produce living things because when pools begin to dry up, little wrigglers are uh, found in the wet mud. So, though this podcast episode is not aimed at like, trying to convince you of Thales' water monism, as you can see, via Clark, there's a compelling case to be made for water as the essential like monist thing that everything else is made of. It's, it's really interesting. So he wasn't just this loon bag. He's trying to reason through what reality is and what, what's the fundamental element. So uh, like Thales is, is a giant figure in, in history. We can laugh at him now. We can laugh at his water monism, but like he was a giant. He's a really smart guy, but these pre-Socratics went back and forth on monism and atomism, trying to figure everything out, while Plato was more concerned with defining the forms or the great ideas, such as truth and goodness, virtue, friendship, piety, righteousness, happiness, beauty, and justice. Plato sought to define these ideas through his dialogues. Dialogos through word. Um, in his dialogues, Plato usually used his mentor Socrates to question uh, various Athenian wise men about the nature of a given idea until he had flummoxed the wise men and showed the fictional audience of the dialogue, as well as the reader, us, just how difficult it is to define the most important ideas. Through dialogue, we are able to view Plato's higher realm of the forms or ideas, the most real realm. But even more than that, through this process of dialogical reasoning towards definitions, we are led to examine our lives and realize just how little we know, which is actually the path towards true knowledge. For Plato's Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. In the field of philosophy, none stand taller than Plato. And uh, like most of you guys will know that. Like We've all heard of Plato. Many of us have had to read Plato. Uh, he comes up in pop culture all the time. This dude's a giant. In the field of philosophy, none stand taller than Plato. Well, Thales is a, is a big, important figure. Clark says he's the start of it, but many see Plato as like the the philosopher king himself, ruling over the field of philosophy. Philosopher and mathematician Alfred North Whitehead 
has gone as far to say that the safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. And that line's really famous, footnotes to Plato. Uh, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the, uh, the old man says, he's, he's talking with the kids and he goes, what do they teach you kids today? Don't you all know, don't you know that, that everything's in Plato? It's all in Plato. And that's, that's the understanding for, for many people today, that it's all in Plato. He is the king. But philosopher Mortimer Adler, on the other hand, begged to differ. He claimed that Plato is actually second best and the crown belongs to the true philosopher king, Aristotle. Adler explained that while Plato raised almost all the questions that everyone should face, Aristotle raised them too, and in addition gave us clear answers to them. Plato taught Aristotle how to think philosophically, but Aristotle learned the questions so well that he is the better teacher for all of us. Aristotle took philosophy to the next level, and with it, the science of definition. Adler notes that for Aristotle, to define is to state the genus and differentia by which the species of a thing is constituted. In Aristotle's usage, a genus is just a class of things, and a differentia is something that differentiates the defined thing from other things in that same class. So you have this class, and you have a differentia. There's a bunch of things in this class, and there's things that make uh, the subjects of the class or the constituents of the class that make them different. Man, as Aristotle defines him, is the rational animal. Animal being the genus and rational being the thing that differentiates man from other animals, the differentia. So rationality is Aristotle's differentia for differentiating me from my dog. Right? So that, that's a really important differentia. So though many throughout the history of philosophy have agreed with Whitehead about the prominence of Plato, they have often taken his content and opted for the conceptual clarity of Aristotle's method, especially when it comes to definition. So instead of writing dialogues, like most of the philosophers after Aristotle are following Aristotle's method, even if they're still asking the same questions that Plato asked. Okay, now that we've surveyed uh, a bit of history to demonstrate the importance of definition in philosophy, let's try our hand at actually defining philosophy. Like what, what is philosophy? Well, we've seen that definitions are important to philosophers. Mortimer Adler argues that they are just as important for mankind in general. And, you know, I, everyone's a philosopher, right? But if you do that, you make it so general that it's useless. Uh, but definitions are, are vitally important for philosophers and for general philosophy, for, for humans, for rational animals. Adler says that the search for definition basically belongs to the activity of the human mind in all its scientific or dialectical efforts to clarify discourse, to achieve precision of thought, to focus issues, and to resolve them. Men have no other way of coming to terms with one another than by defining the words they use to express their concepts or meanings. So that's a really important point. It's not just for the academic philosophers. It's not just for those who have spent their whole lives philosophizing. It's for all of us. We all need to define our terms. And when we do, we can have proper conversations. But we, when we are operating with different definitions and different concepts, we're going to talk past each other. We're going to end up just straight brawling because we're, we're equivocating. We're talking uh, about different things. Whatever it is, we're not communicating properly. So then what is a definition? Well, if you Google the etymology of definition, you'll see that it comes from the Latin definire, to set bounds to, 
You'll often hear people break the word definition down into day, meaning of, and finite, having limits or bounds. I don't think this is a huge stretch since finite comes from the Latin finire. So etymologically, we can understand definition as setting limits of boundaries to a word. This is in and that on the other side of the boundary is out. That's pretty interesting, but but we need more. It's not just uh, setting these boundaries, right? If you Google definition, you'll see that definition is a statement of the exact meaning of a word, especially in a dictionary. So now, now we're getting a little bit closer, but dictionary definitions don't exhaust the full semantic range of the word definition. So we still need more. Remember back to our definition of our, our discussion of Aristotle. He listed uh, two conditions of a definition, right? A, a genus and a def- differentia, a genus and a differentia. What he demonstrated so long ago is still useful for our efforts today. Logician, someone who uh, studies and teaches logic, which is the analysis and appraisal of arguments, a logician, which is awesome, where it sounds like magician, right? Logician David Kelly defines a genus as a class of things regarded as having various subcategories, its species, and a differentia as the element in a definition that specifies the attribute or attributes distinguishing a species from another species of the same genus. So with these two in hand, Kelly defines definition as a statement that identifies the reference of a concept by specifying the genus they belong to and the essential characteristics, differentia, that distinguish those reference from other members of the genus. But it's not that quite not not quite that easy. Uh, it turns out that there are different kinds of definitions, even given Aristotle's genus differentia scheme, which is employed by David Kelly. Uh, another logician, Harry Gensler, defines a definition as a rule of paraphrase intended to explain meaning. He then differentiates between lexical definitions, which explain current usage of a word, and stipulative definitions, which specify an individual's unique usage of a word. They stipulate. Let me just stipulate this. Here's what I mean. So we're going to get past all these lexical definitions. Here's what I mean. That's when you stipulate a definition. So that's a stipulative definition. Lexical definitions are synonymous with dictionary definitions. The uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, again, SEP, uh, amazing free online philosophy resource. The SCP entry on definition says that a dictionary explains the meaning of a term in one sense of this phrase. Dictionaries aim to provide definitions that contain sufficient information to impart an understanding of the term. Let me do that one more time. A dictionary explains the meaning of a term in one sense of the phrase. Dictionaries aim to provide definitions that contain sufficient information to impart an understanding of the term. So we're, we're, we're looking for an understanding. Here's a term. Here is enough information to help you understand what this term is. So according to Gensler, a good lexical or dictionary definition is neither too broad nor too narrow. It will avoid circularity and uh, poorly understood terms. It will match in vagueness the term defined. It will match, as far as possible, the emotional tone, positive, negative, neutral, of the term defined, and it will include only properties essential to the term. A stipulative definition, 
specifies how you're going to use the term. Since your usage may be a new one, it's unfair to criticize a stipulative definition for classing with conventional use. Stipulative definitions should be judged not as correct or incorrect, but as useful or useless. So here you stipulate what you mean by a word, and you don't say, well, that's 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 not right or that's wrong. You say, well, that's not useful, or, wow, that's really useful. That's a great definition, great stipulative definition. But unfortunately for both you and I, there are even more ways to parse definition, to define definition. So there's a descriptive definition. And uh, Gensler says that like stipulative ones, they spell out meaning, but they also aim to be adequate to existing usage. When philosophers offer definitions of no and free, they are not being stipulative. A lack of fit with existing usage is an objection to them. So you have a lexical definition. This is how it is uh, used. Then you have a stipulative definition. I don't care about lexical definitions. I'm going to make my own. Then you have a descriptive definition, which is it's like stipulatives in that it's trying to spell out meaning, but it also is trying to hold on to the past too. So it, the descriptive definition is like a middle way between stipulation or stipulative definitions and dictionary definitions. You want to be faithful to the dictionary, but you also want to stipulate a little bit so that you can make uh, you can help with understanding in a way that the dictionary is not. Well, you also have exp- explicative definitions explicative definitions. And Gensler says, sometimes a definition is offered neither descriptively nor stipulatively. These are hard words. But as what Rudolf Carnap called an explication. An explication aims to respect some central uses of a term, but is stipulative on others. The explication may be offered as an absolute improvement of an existing imperfect concept, or it may be offered as a good thing to mean by the term in a specific context or for a particular use. So this might be roughly synonymous with what logicians Copy and Cohen call precising definitions, those used to eliminate ambiguity or vagueness. So an explicative definition, uh, it's similar to me, it's, a, it's similar to a descriptive in that it's kind of this middle way between stipulative and dictionary. But there's more advance. It's, I would say it's closer to stipulative in that it's saying we're taking this term and we're going to change its meaning while still kind of holding on to some of the semantic uh, content. Maybe we're, we're limiting the semantic range and we're cutting off some of what the dictionary would include. Maybe we're including more, but we're trying to advance this definition. And then we have uh, ostensive definitions. And Gensler says that ostensive definitions typically depend on the context and experience. Suppose the conversational context renders one dog salient among several that are visible. Then one can in- introduce the name Freddy through this stipulation. Let Freddy be this dog. For example, uh, suppose you're looking at a branch of a bush and you stipulate, uh, you stipulatively introduce the name Charlie. Thus, let Charlie be the insect on that branch. So this definition can uh, pin a referent on Charlie, even if there are many insects on the branch. So ostensive, uh, ostination, is that the right word? Uh, an ostensive definition is like pointing to something. You're using ostension. You are, uh, you're pointing, let that dog be defined as Charlie or this ant or this limb is going to be called Fred. Like you, you need sight. You need to see what someone's pointing at. You need to be in contact with them and they're using their words and they're using their 
motions, their hand motions, their gestures, uh, a stick, whatever it is. They are ostensibly defining things. And then uh, lastly, finally, we have persuasive definitions, a definition formulated and used to resolve a dispute by influencing attitudes or stirring emotions, often relying upon the use of emotive language. These are common in political argument. The right defines capitalism as freedom of the economic sphere, and the left defines socialism as democracy extended to the economic sphere. So uh, persuasive definitions are kind of nasty. This is like a little bit of sophistry, right? Um, I'm just going to define it in a bad way or a good way, and I'm kind of poisoning the well against uh, anyone who is my opponent. So I'm going to give it the best possible definition in order to convince people, or I'm going to give it the worst possible definition in order to convince them against this position. And so those ones are gross. We probably shouldn't use those. Um, That was a little bit painful. But uh, it was like a page and a half in Microsoft Word, so it wasn't that bad. But let me just introduce like two more important concepts for definitions, and then we can get into actually defining philosophy or getting back to it. So last two, here we go. They're also Latin, so sorry about that. But the first one is the definiendum, and the second is the definiens. So the definiendum, or uh, man, what's the other word for it? The... Explicans or expl- no, no, that's that's an explanation. Okay, fine. Uh, the definium, de- <laughs> the, this is really hard. The definiendum uh, is in any definition, it's the word or symbol being defined, that which is to be defined. So you have this thing that you want to define. Uh, if it's if we're doing an ostent, if we're doing an ostensive definition, then this is like the dog. The dog is the definiendum. Uh, and I, I didn't take Latin, so maybe I'm, I'm butchering that. But you got this dog here. That is the thing to be defined in, in an ostensive definition. Then you have the definions. And that is, in any definition, a symbol or group of symbols that is said to have the same meaning as the definiendum, the thing doing the defining. So in ostentation, or I don't know if that's right, in ostensive definitions, you saying, let this dog be Charlie like you're defining the dog as Charlie, you're, you're, you're actually naming it, right? But in a certain perspective, you can be said to be defining this dog as Charlie. The name Charlie is def- the definions and Charlie, the actual dog, the actual dog is the definiendum. Boom, we did it. You now know more about definitions than you ever wanted to know. So let's define some philosophy. So remember back to the quote I introduced from Roger Scruton in the beginning about how philosophy is just this prolonged search for its own definition. Well, if we include a bit more of the full quote, we can see that Scruton is giving us a stipulative definition of philosophy. He says, what is philosophy? There is no simple answer to this question. Indeed, it is in one respect the main question of philosophy whose history is a prolonged search for its own definition. Nevertheless, a kind of answer can be given in terms terms that explain what follows. Philosophy involves the attempt to formulate and also answer certain questions. Bertrand Russell, another giant figure in modern analytic philosophy, um, gives us a stipulative definition which further expounds on Scruton's, though, you know, that's kind of anachronistic because Scruton came after, right? So, or the reverse of anachronistic. Scruton came after, but uh, these two definitions are in, uh, they work with each other. So Russell says, is there any knowledge in the world which is so certain that no reasonable man could doubt it? This question, which at first sight might 
not seem difficult is really one of the most difficult that can be asked. When we have realized the obstacles in the way of a straightforward and confident answer, we shall be well launched on the study of philosophy. For philosophy is merely the attempt to answer such ultimate questions, not carelessly and dogmatically as we do in ordinary life and even in the sciences, shots fired, but critically, after exploring all that makes questions puzzling, and after realizing all the vagueness and confusion that underlie our ordinary ideas. So uh, Russell's stipulative definition is, is pretty long, but uh, while I was skimming the Oxford Companion to Philosophy, in the entry for Philosophical Inquiry, uh, Premise and First Principles, I came across one of the briefest definitions I've, I've ever seen. This is way shorter than Russell's. It says, there is an aspect of philosophy that is per pervasive enough to be sometimes used to define it. The criticism of assumptions. And that's kind of what Russell was getting at. So philosophy is to criticize your assumptions. Now that's that's pretty that's pretty brief, um, but I think it's not very useful since it's open to lots of counterexamples. A specific instance that uh, proves a de definition wrong. That's what a counterexample is. So for instance, if you came home and assumed that your wife made you dinner and she criticizes your assumption, is she now a philosopher? She really practicing philosophy at this point? Like, no, I don't think so. I want to make the semantic range of philosophy more narrow than to include, like, your wife just talking at you, or or you just discussing uh, dinner plans with your wife. Like, it's more than that, right? Um, it it needs to be defined more uh, tightly than that. John Frame, in his A History of Western Philosophy and Theology, gives us a, another brief stipulative definition, but which leaves us with a much thicker meaning. Frame says, I define philosophy as the disciplined attempt to articulate and defend a worldview. So again, very, very brief stipulative definition here. He says, I define philosophy as the disciplined attempt to articulate and defend a worldview. And he, he goes on to further uh, explicate this definition uh, as such. He says, a worldview is a general conception of the universe. The sciences generally seek understanding of particular aspects of the universe, chemistry, the chemical, bio biology, the biological, and so on. But philosophy deals with the most general truths of reality. What is? How do we know? How should we act? The term worldview, therefore, is an appropriate designation for the subject matter of philosophy. Again, going back to Cowan and Spiegel, they also emphasize the importance of worldviews in philosophy. Though they don't go as far as Frame does in stipulating an identity between the two, instead they see the development of a uh, reasonable worldview as one of the main tasks of philosophy. They go on to give a definition of worldview as such. They say, a worldview is a conceptual scheme or an intellectual framework by which a person organizes and interprets experience. More specifically, a worldview is a set of beliefs, values, and presuppositions concerning life's most fundamental issues. You might say it is a perspective on reality. Like tinted glasses, a worldview colors the way we see things and shapes our interpretation of the world. And it must be emphasized, everyone has a worldview. So there's a, a little bit of discrepancy there between Frame and uh, Spiegel and Cowan, though they're both emphasizing the importance of of worldviews. Frame identifies philosophy with like worldview thinking, whereas uh, Cowan and Spiegel emphasize uh, that worldviews are important, but it's actually the task of philosophy to create worldviews or to help us think through both. Mm, they're, they're both really close. 
So in defining life's most fundamental issues, they quote from one of my favorite Christian philosophers, Ronald Nash, who says that worldviews answer the fundamental questions of God, which is theology, reality, which is metaphysics, knowledge, which is epistemology, human beings, which is anthropology, and values, which is ethics, aesthetics, and political philosophy. So while I love when philosophers emphasize these worldviews, uh, I think ultimately to define philosophy as such is is too narrow. In search of a, a more descriptive definition slash understanding of philosophy, we can return once more to Scruton, who says, philosophy arises, therefore, in two contrasted ways. First, in attempting to complete the why of explanation. Secondly, in attempting to justify the other kinds of why. The why, which looks for a reason, and the why, which looks for a meaning. Most of the traditional branches of the subject stem from these two attempts, the first of which is hopeless, the second of which is our best source of hope. So he's going over these these two types of, of whys. Uh, so philosophy for Scruton is the attempt to answer the right kind of why question. Um, I, I like that, but it, it's probably too broad then. So we have worldview might be too narrow. Um, just answering these these various types of why questions, uh, the why of meaning and uh, the, the why, uh, which looks for a reason, that, that might be too broad. But the great thing about Scruton is that he's just chocked full of great descriptive definitions. Scruton spells out the meaning of philosophy in three aspects which comprise the subject matter of philosophy. So we got A, B, and C. A, he says, philosophy studies another realm of being to which it gains access through its own procedures. The purpose of the ultimate question is therefore to open gates into that other realm. This was the view adopted by Plato and argued for in some of the most inspiring and beautiful uh, of all philosophical writings. So there's this other world and our questions, our philosophizing, open up that world to us. Even though it's not like it's metaphysical, we're not literally going into the wardrobe, but we're able to conceptualize it. B, philosophy studies anything. Philosophical questions arise at any juncture and concern any kind of thing. There are philosophical questions about tables, for example. What makes this table the same as the table I encountered yesterday? This is the problem of identity through time. And then we have C, philosophy studies everything. So B is philosophy studies anything. C is philosophy studies everything. It tries to provide a theory of the whole of things. In contrast to the bitterness of science, philosophy attempts an integrated account of the world in which all truth will be harmonized. So that is the kind of worldview aspect. So uh, Scruton is doing a really great job here. He he brings up a uh, more more traditional understanding, um, which might be more lexical. And then he's also giving some like stipulative uh, definitions here, and they're more explanatory. They're they're really good. So he says philosophy studies anything. Philosophy studies everything. He's including worldview thinking in there. But uh, he's also um, showing uh, the particular task of philosophy in picking out particulars and asking about tables. So I like these various uh, types of definitions and how they help us wrap our heads around philosophy. However, I've found that when it comes to definitions of philosophy, uh, explicative definitions, those that seek to respect some central uses of a term and yet offer improvement, they're the best ones. So here are... Uh, a couple definitions that I think are really, really, really good. They're 
uh, explicative. So A.C. Grayling says, philosophy is derived from a Greek word literally meaning love of wisdom, but is better and more accurately defined as inquiry or inquiry and reflection, allowing these expressions their widest scope to denote thought about general features of the world and human experience within it. James K. Dew and Paul M. Gould say philosophy, as the etymology of the word suggests, Philene to love and Sophia, wisdom, is the love of wisdom. Better and more provocative, the philosopher is wisdom's lover. Philosopher, philosophers are those who refuse to accept what is false. They hate it and have a love for the truth. We shall understand philosophy as the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom for the sake of flourishing. So you see how that is a... Uh, explicative definition because they are they're looking at the etymological definition which will appear in in lexical definitions but then they're improving on it and they're saying here's a better one here's how we can keep that but then go forward next we have uh, jp moreland and william n craig in their philosophical foundations for a christian worldview they say first one could focus on the etymology of the word philosophy the word comes from two greek words phileo to love and sophia wisdom thus a philosopher is a lover of wisdom Socrates held that the unexamined life is not worth living, and the ancient Greek philosophers sought wisdom regarding truth, knowledge, beauty, and goodness. In this sense, then, philosophy is the attempt to think hard about life, the world as a whole, and the things that matter most in order to secure knowledge and wisdom about these matters. Accordingly, philosophy may be defined as the attempt to think rationally and critically about life's most important questions in order to obtain knowledge and wisdom about them. Philosophy can help someone form a rationally justified true worldview, that is, an ordered set of propositions that one believes, especially propositions about life's most important questions. Whew, that was a good one. That like has to be because it was so, so long, but they were doing justice to the etymology of the word, and some various uh, like uh, stipulative definitions that have kind of come to come down to us as stipulative definitions, and then they also included some worldview in there. So this was a big old thick definition. And uh, just just finishing up here, last but not least, we have a a brief persuasive definition of philosophy from Alvin Plantinga, who says uh, philosophical reflection is not much different from just thinking hard. Okay, so now we are ready at long last to consider. The problem of definition. We've we've looked at a couple definitions of philosophy, but what about this this problem of our definitions and reality? So the philosophical problem of definition has to do with the object of definition, the thing being defined, the def the definiendum. Does the definiens really give us the essence of the definiendum? Can definitions do this? Or are definitions merely conceptual? Do they just relate to the names we've given things? Or worse still, do definitions just reflect our own desires? Are they just pragmatic tools we use for our own means? Mortimer Adler sums up this problem really, really well in his Syntopicon under the, uh, the definition entry. He says, there is first of all the question about the object of definition. What is being defined when men make or defend definitions? This question broadens into the problem of nominal as opposed to real definitions. That is a complex problem which raises a number of further questions. Are all definitions arbitrary expressing the conventions of our speech or the particular purpose we have in mind when, class when we classify things? 
Or do some, if not all definitions, express the real natures of the things defined? Do they classify things according to the natural kinds which have reality apart from our mind and its interests? So uh, according to Adler, we have three groups uh, of answers to the problem of definition. We have the realists, the nominalists, and the pragmatists. The realists say that at least some, if not all, definitions actually express the real nature of things defined. Definitions are capable of expressing things according to their kinds, and realists would include figures such as Aristotle and Aquinas. So uh, maybe, maybe they wouldn't say all definitions are actually expressed. You can have false definitions, but your definition is false because it is not corresponding to the the natural kinds or the natural order or the natural like essence. So if you define a cat as a uh, by the by the definition of a dog, like that's a that's a false definition. That's not accurate. That's it's wrong because for these type thinkers, these these thinkers like Aristotle and Aquinas, uh, yes, our definitions can match up to reality. The nominalists, on the other hand, uh, they say that definitions are nominal. Nominal from the Latin uh, nomen and nominalis name. Uh, they would say that uh, definitions are in name only. They don't express the real nature of things defined. They are arbitrary and express the conventions of our speech. Sure, definitions tell us what words mean through uh, how words have been used, but they don't really map onto reality like the realists believe. Famous nominalists include uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. And then we have the pragmatists. And for pragmatists, definitions express the purpose or interests which uh, the the definers have in mind when they classify things to suit themselves. The pragmatists focus on the uh, practicality of definitions rather than uh, theoretical or metaphysical considerations like essences, natures, substances, all that stuff. So the, the chief pragmatist concerning definitions is a philosopher by the name of William James. And surprisingly, Blaise Pascal like fits in this camp also, which, which is weird because uh, maybe this is weird for me. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to uh, put him there. I wouldn't see that. So, so that's the debate. We have uh, the realists, the nominalists, and the pragmatists. But so now, now we get to the good stuff. We get to theology and definition. So it's my contention that without belief in God, specifically a creator God like the God of the Bible, all definitions would be relegated to pragmatism. And maybe you don't think that's a, a really big deal, I, but I do. I, I think pragmatism by itself is pretty garb garb. Like it's it's not good. So why do I think that? Well, if Darwinistic evolution is the great uh, meta-narrative, the great overarching grand narrative archetypal storyline of reality, then what the ancient philosopher Protagoras said is true. Man is the measure of all things. If there is no purpose, no telos, no teleology, no you know, purpose or design in the world, but rather if all is in constant flux, um, just just chance acting on matter over time, then of course our definitions don't tell us about essences. Man is the highest rationality in the universe. We are a cosmic accident, and we choose to define reality in terms that best suit our purposes, namely the survival of our species, and uh, within that, the survival of the fittest among those of our species. But if Darwinistic evolution is the driving force behind the development of our reasoning capacities, then it's it's more probable that we would def, uh, we would have evolved to produce beliefs that are useful for helping us survive rather than truths that are uh, true, <laughs> or beliefs that are true. So now, of course, true beliefs would would probably help us survive well. But the theory of survival of the fittest is aimed at survival, right? Not not truth. 
and uh the two while related are not the same so yes a, a true belief would probably help you survive better than a false belief but uh, a false belief that approximates the truth would still help you survive if a i've used this before but if a frog thinks that eating a uh dragonfly is going to make him a frog prince like it doesn't matter the content of thought as long as the pragmatic action happens as long as he eats the dragonfly he'll continue surviving doesn't really matter the content so on a darwinistic this is uh, alvin planning as evolutionary argument against naturalism and he's saying that it's it's way more probable on an evolutionary you know darwinistic theory of evolution that all of our cognitive faculties would be aimed at producing beliefs that help us survive not help us find truth so though uh, it would be beneficial to find truth. Something close enough to the truth to survive is really what we would be producing more often than not. And then if we do have a true belief, it would be true like by accident uh, because our cognitive faculties aren't aimed at finding it, but aimed at f- survival beliefs. And so if you coincidentally have a true belief in your survival beliefs, well, I don't think that's justified. So yeah, you're that's bad. <laughs> Uh, if Darwinistic evolution is true and our cognitive faculties evolved over time in order to produce beliefs which help us survive, then we have a reason not to trust our cognitive faculties to give us true beliefs. So then we ought not take our beliefs in Darwinistic evolution to be a true belief either. Right? So if we say that all of our beliefs are aimed at survival, well, I believe in Darwinistic evolution. Yeah, but you don't believe it to be true. You believe that that belief is going to help you survive, right? Because that's what Darwinistic evolution tells you your cognitive faculties do. So you shouldn't say it's true. You should say it's like um, helps you survive. It's a belief that that helps you survive. I think like Jordan Peterson would say that is what it means to be true because he's got this crazy definition of truth that is just so utterly pragmatic, which I think is actually consistent with Darwinistic evolution, but it's bonkers to the rest of us when we see that. So if this argument holds, which is uh, again like it's a it's a simple simplistic version of Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against naturalism, then of course it would apply to our definitions as well. We pragmatically define things according to our desire to survive, not necessarily according to the nature of the thing itself. If, however, you hold to the Christian meta narrative, then you could be justified in, in being a realist about definitions. Indeed, some philosophers in the Western tradition have been so realist in their understanding of definitions that they've sought to use definitions to demonstrate the existence of God. The most uh, famous proponent of this type of argument, which has come to be known as the ontological argument, is philosopher-theologian Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm defined God as something than which nothing greater can be thought. One more time. Something than which nothing greater can be thought. So if you can think of a God that is perfect but does not exist, then I can think of something greater. Namely, a a God who is perfect and who does exist. So if God is a being greater than which no other being can exist, then God must exist. Uh, What? (laughs) Was that too slick to have any, any value? Well, uh, again, we may return to the eminent Roger Scruton, who we've used over and over in this in this episode, uh, for some more interesting insights. Scruton says, the ontological argument is normally offered as a proof for the existence of God, 
but it is capable of a wider interpretation and reappears in Spinoza and Hegel as the final answer to every why. It tells us that God is, by definition, the sum of all perfections, so that existence, which is part of perfection, belongs to his essence. He must exist. And the question why he exists answers itself. Since God's existence explains everything else, no why is without an answer. Not even the why of the world. Stated thus briefly and bluntly, the argument has the appearance of sophism. Hence, it is never stated briefly or bluntly, but wrapped in artful subtleties. Indeed, it is the one argument for God's existence that is still alive and which perhaps always was alive, even before St. Anselm gave explicit voice to it. For what is really meant by the sublime words which open the gospel according to St. John? In the beginning, writes the evangelist, was the word, the logos. In Greek philosophy, logos means not only word, but reason, argument, account, any answer to the question why. In other words, or rather in the same words, if you stick to the Greek, in the beginning was the why which answers itself. Now, I wonder what uh, D.A. Carson would, would say about that rendering of, of logos there, but it's interesting, right? So, uh, Scruton says it's the only argument for God's existence still alive. That's not true at all. But um, it's a really unique point that he's drawing this ontological argument all the way back to John 1. In the beginning was Halagos, and Halagos was, you know, with God and was God. So that is the ultimate, God is the ultimate answer to the why question. He is the why which answers itself. So, yeah, I, I take issue with Scruton's contention that uh, this, this argument is the last one uh, for God left on the table. But the rest of this quote is, is just, it's pure gold. Uh, Scruton moves effortlessly from the more speculative philosophical reasoning of Anselm to the sure word of the Bible. What, what he's ex- expounding on is this, uh, what, what's traditionally known as the Logos doctrine, which borrows heavily from Hellenistic philosophy. But interestingly, he ends up broadening the definition of Logos out past just reason to give a richer definition than uh, many Christians can even get behind. But uh, leaving aside the issue of defining God for another blo- uh, another time, let's follow Scruton's lead and move from speculative reasoning back to the word and back to showing how a biblical meta-narrative can justify realism regarding definitions. So in the first book of the Bible, uh, which is Genesis, we find justification for real definitions, realism. God created the world for a purpose and with a design. He made humans in his image and his likeness for the purpose of cultivating the earth, for exercising dominion, and for caring for his animals. Here we see God's definition of man. Now, now Plato is attributed with defining man as a featherless biped. This definition was open to a hilarious counterexample presented by Diogenes the Cynic in the form of a plucked chicken. So Diogenes uh, goes to Plato's academy and he tosses this plucked chicken down in the midst of, of Plato's students. And he says, here is Plato's man, right? Because if it's just a featherless biped, then a chicken is a biped has two feet, right? Two pedals, whatever, two feet and no feathers because it's plucked. So is that really a good definition of man? Well, Diogenes shows this awesome counterexample, hilarious and powerful. Aristotle, however, as as we saw earlier, defined man as the rational animal. But this definition is criticized for um, too narrowly focusing in on one of man's properties. 
so you know what about those who are not as rational are they less human and focusing on the the primacy of the intellect the will is left out as well and uh also the affections we've covered this in a previous podcast but while many have criticized aristotle's uh, functional definition of man still many today find it pretty useful and i think that we should incorporate it into our definition but it can't be um our sole definition the bible on the other hand defines man with reference to God, man is the imago Dei, the image of God, the image-bearing animal, if we're going to use the Aristotle uh, terminology, the one made in the likeness of the creator, the arbiter animal, maybe, right? He's, he's the one who arbitrates God's will here on earth. <clears throat> so Genesis 1, 26 through 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there is a really important uh, piece that men and women are both made in the image of God. Women are not less or anything like that. Um, Men and women are both imago Dei. So in in finding our definition from the top down rather than from the bottom up, we can avoid this uh, these various counterexamples that are advanced against other self-referential definitions. And while the image of God certainly includes various capacities like reasoning, uh, this definition is broad enough to include other desiderata, something that is needed or wanted, something desirable, right? Within the biblical meta narrative, we see God creating animals and plants according to their kinds. And then giving his image bearers the task of naming them. This is Genesis 2, 19 through 20, if you want to look that up. So one of the first jobs man was called to was the science of taxonomy. We see then that those who hold to the biblical view of the world have a reason to be realists about definitions. God made mankind partially for the purpose of definition, for defining things. Those who hold a Darwinistic view, on the other hand, seem to have a reason not to be realists, even about their own definitions of Darwinistic evolutionary theory, which is pretty sweet. It's like a little bit of self-defeat there for you guys. So um, this has been a really long one, but uh, I hope it's been helpful. I hope you learned something. There's been a lot of definitions flying around, definitions of definitions, definitions of philosophy, philosophical definitions of philosophy. We've been all over the place. But uh, congrats, you made it through uh, this podcast episode. I hope that you learned something. I hope it wasn't super pedantic or anything like that. Um, if you want to read this, then uh, check out my uh, blog post on the problem of definition or the problem of defining philosophy. I'm not sure what I called it. I'll put that in the show notes and you can read those definitions for yourself. Um, there's certainly a lot more to be said about definitions. I probably got some stuff wrong in there. But uh, hopefully this was like a jumping off point for you to philosophize, to get more into philosophy and theology and to see that the Christian worldview makes sense of the phenomena of us defining things according to their kinds and why a Darwinistic uh, worldview can't or shouldn't or is unable to or self-defeating. Well, pick pick one of those and run with it. So while we could say more, we're not going to. I need to cut it off here. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.